see that Paul ponders a question. He asks this question, is it better to be alive or dead? Bit of a strange question, you might think. And, uh, well, one that sometimes people ask when they're at a bit of a low point, you know, and uh, wondering, what more is there in this life for me? Well, um, I'm pretty confident that Paul wasn't here considering taking his own life, but his future was clearly on his mind. Remember that in writing the letter to the Philippians, he was in prison, he was in captivity in Rome, uh, and, uh, of course, that affected his ability to preach. It affected to his ability to, to travel and to visit the churches that he was involved in supporting and setting up. Uh, but he was certainly making the most of his time by at least writing to them. But it, I guess it's true to say that he wasn't sure what was in store for him, whether he was going to be able to uh, be released to continue his ministry or whether uh, in time the authorities would decide that actually he was too much of a troublemaker and they wanted to to put an end to his ministry for good. Well, indeed, it's believed, the details aren't completely clear, but it is believed that a few years later he was imprisoned again and executed, uh, probably also in Rome. So that fear did, did come true. But here we see he was considering what, what would happen to him and pondering whether it, it was better to be alive or dead. Well, your answer to that question... Um, as with many questions, I suppose, depends on your point of view, depends on your starting point. Perhaps you're someone who thinks that this life is all there is. You know, perhaps you think that when we die, there's nothing, the so-called annihilation theory. In that case, I guess the answer would be obvious. You know, you might say, well, how can being dead and lifeless and unable to respond be better than being alive? Why even ask the question? You know, that view would result in a determination, wouldn't it, to to fill this life with uh, as many great experiences as possible. But for the Christian believer, of course, the answer is quite different uh, and less straightforward. And that's why it's an interesting question that Paul poses. You know, we see this life as a temporary thing uh, on our way to something else after death. Uh, And although we will still want to live a full and active life here on earth, we recognize that it's not everything. Uh, and we have a different outlook on life, and that means that our fundamental approach is different. Uh, or does it? <laughs> and that's kind of what, what I want us to consider this evening. I want us to think about this passage, particularly in the light of verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a famous verse, well known to most of us, I expect. But, uh, and it's probably something that we'd hold up as a motto text. But do we really live in the light of it? Can we really say for us that to live is Christ? And do we really see death as a gain? Or is our approach to life really much the same as the unbeliever in day-to-day terms? You know, we live in the here and now. And although we have a, you know, this thought that eternal life is to come, uh, we don't actually think much about it uh, in an on-, on an ongoing basis. Uh, We don't anticipate eternity as much as we should. So you could say that verse 21 is really Paul's answer to his own question of whether it's better to be alive or dead. And it's my hope that by thinking about what it means this evening, we will hopefully be further motivated to to live consistently with that outlook. So firstly, we see what it means to live in this verse 21, what it means to live. If you've seen the film uh, The Jungle Book, 
I don't mean the, the recent 2016 version, I mean the original one, 1967, D Disney Films released it. You remember there's a scene where Baloo the bear is singing the bear necessities, he's up against a rock scratching his back, and he says, man, this is really living. I'm not going to sing the song, but you can remember the scene from that film. Or you'll recall from Luke's Gospel, the parable of the rich fool who says to himself, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry while he surveys his huge wealth. Well, both of those things sum up quite well the prevailing view in society of what it means to be successful in this life. On the one hand, having experiences that make you feel good or give you a good sensation, or being rich and being able to enjoy all that that, that brings. But as he often does, Paul here makes a statement that is completely against that. It's completely counterculture. He says to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, in a general sense, it means our identity and our existence as Christians is entirely bound up in the Lord Jesus. He's our life. The clue is in the name, isn't it? Christian starts with the word, with the word Christ. But Paul also gives us some practical pointers in the surrounding verses. Let's look at verse 22. We see in verse 22, uh, to live as Christ means fruitful labor. Uh, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. We know, don't we, that the Christian life is one of work and service. And Paul was a good example of that. We, we, he was what we call an activist. And we've got to be a bit careful with that. The word activist can have a bit of a negative connotation, can't it? It makes you think of someone who's anti-establishment, uh, doing radical things to make a point, perhaps a political point, with perhaps little regard for rules or the law. Well, in Paul's case, he was certainly radical. He was often in trouble with the authorities, as we see here. He was locked up. But he was most clearly an activist in the sense that he was active. He was keen to work and spread the gospel. Um, of course, he, he believed in a sovereign God who has a purpose, but he also believed that God uses means. And that in order for the gospel to be made known and for the church to grow, hard work was required. And that should be our view too. It means work in the sense of serving in the church, leading a group or volunteering to help with different activities in the church. And that's very much a necessary part of our um, life, isn't it? Our church life. Many activities would stop without people to organize them and to help. But I think verse 22 means labor in other senses. For example, using of our, our own time to better equip ourselves to work and to serve. Now, um, sometimes you may take up a new hobby. Let's say, for example, you're going to get into beekeeping and... Uh, you know, you want to get better at it, so you do a number of things. You might buy books about bees, you know, read up about the habits of bees. You might uh, read up on the best techniques for, for beekeeping and making as much honey as possible. You may take advice from experts, people who've been doing it for years and know the ropes. Maybe you join a local club and plan your time uh, so that you can make sure you attend their meetings. It's very natural to do those things, all with the aim of becoming a better beekeeper. You might say you'd get a buzz out of those things. So it would be odd, wouldn't it, for the Christian not to take a similar approach if he or she is interested in being a more effective worker, studying the Bible and praying over it privately and with others, reading Christian books to better understand the Bible or to learn practical techniques on evangelism, for example, comparing experiences with other Christians, planning our time to make sure that we can attend the meetings of the church, in short, using our own time to better equip ourselves to serve 
and to work. So Paul was clear here that to live as Christ involved work, but he's not talking about work that has no end result. He uses the phrase fruitful labour. Well, I'm sure we've all at some time experienced fruitless labour. Uh, perhaps you've been working at something on your computer only to have it to shut down uh, at a, a key moment because of the battery was too low or for some other reason. And uh, before you've saved your work, you realise that you've lost what you were working on, wasted several hours of effort, uh, and you've got to do it all again. Very frustrating. But Paul here is not talking about that kind of thing. He's talking about work that results in something. He's talking about fruitful labour. So how can he be sure? Uh, how can he be so sure that there will be an outcome of his work? Well, surely it's the pattern of God's sovereign hand at work through the ages, through history, working out his purposes through his faithful people and some unlikely circumstances. And also, God's sovereign promises shown in verses like Isaiah 55:11, My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So we too can expect the same, that our work will be fruitful in sharing the gospel if we are faithfully working to do that. Now that's not to say that we will see the results. We often expect immediate results, don't we? But in the same way that a person who plants an oak tree usually won't live to see the fully grown tree, we need to be content to know that God will produce fruit, even though we might not see it. And that's, I think, a challenge for us personally, isn't it? You know, that there may be people that you've, you've witnessed to or prayed for, sometimes for years, but they appear to be unchanged. Well, we need to pray as well as, well as for, for those people. We need to pray for God's help for us to be able to trust his promises that he will use the seed that is sown for the extension of his kingdom. So that's the first thing that Paul uses to define what to live as Christ means. He, means, he talks about fruitful labour. But he also goes on to speak about progress and joy, particularly in verse 25. But we'll read from 24. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, on first reading this, you can think, well, that's uh, Paul's quite full of himself, isn't he? He's saying, well, you know, because of me, you're going to experience progress and joy in the faith and overflowing joy in Christ. But, of course, what Paul is really talking about here is um, the, the key element of fellowship uh, and that leading to joy in Christian work. No Christian is intended to live in isolation from others, although it's true to say that some do by enforced circumstances. We've recently finished a series on Sunday mornings on the book of Romans. Chapter 12 in particular talks about this. Verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And the subsequent verses go on to give practical instructions for how this should show itself in the way we do good to one another and how we relate to one another. And here too in Philippians, Paul reminds us that doing good to others is part of what to live is Christ means. See in verse 25, progress. Progress. It's no accident that the Bible contains several illustrations from the world of horticulture. Think of the parable of the sower. You know, there we see the different soil types, don't we, representing the hearts. 
the different hearts of hearers of the gospel and how it makes the seed that's sown respond in different ways. Or think of Jesus talking about being the vine and how uh, we need to stay attached to him in order to grow. The emphasis is clear that the Christian life is one of growth and development and progress. As time goes by, we should be learning more, we should be appreciating more God's goodness in salvation. Uh, And as we sometimes say in our prayers, becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Paul's point here, though, is that this is much better done with others. We can learn from each other, we can challenge each other, we can set an example, you know, and thus exhort each other. Uh, And as it says in Hebrews 10, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. So that's progress, but he also talks about, together with progress, joy. Because if, if all this sounds you know, a bit dreary and, and like dull, hard work, well, we've got something quite wrong. You know, it should bring us joy. Now, yes, you know, discipline has a definite place in our Christian work, and, and as we've seen, hard work is required for the gospel to spread. Uh, but sometimes those things can take over, can't they? And we get so busy with you know, our various duties or you know, being on the rotor for this and that. Um, that it's uh, easy to lose the joy of it and we forget the privilege that it is to serve and to work. But I think that's where the idea of progress and joy go so closely together. You know, that by making sure we have enough time to grow ourselves, uh, you know, daily learning more about God's goodness to us, being remo- more reminded of our own sin and our unworthiness, uh, the more we will wonder and rejoice at his grace to us in spite of our own sin. And as we work to share the gospel with others too, uh, seeing them grow brings us great joy. The importance of remaining joyful is pointed to by the fact that it's not just a theme of this verse, but it's something that uh, is brought out throughout the letter of Philippians. Uh, The whole letter is uh, infused with the joy of fellowship. Chapter 1 and verse 18 Paul says, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. He's encouraging unity among the Philippians. Chapter 3 and verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always, it's a letter that's full of joy and an exhortation to joy. So that's the second part of to live is Christ, progress and joy from these verses. But thirdly, we see Christ exalted. Christ being exalted. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And you could really say that this is the underlying purpose, you know, that Christ be seen in us as we live our lives. Him being exalted might manifest itself in different ways, you know, perhaps by an obvious change of heart when someone is converted. You know, sometimes you see someone when, when they first become a Christian, they totally change and the, the things that they want to do, you know, uh, are completely different. That can be a great uh, witness to the, the change that has taken place in them. Uh, or sometimes you see people, who, somebody who's going through hard times as a Christian, Uh, And that, too, you know, can be a time when Christ is exalted and Jesus is shown in them because they deal with it in a peaceful way or in a way that is really trusting and knowing that God is guiding them through those times. 
regardless of our circumstances, the, the point is that our status as saved believers should be very evident from the way we behave day by day, and that should be exalting to Christ. The idea of sponsorship in sport is very important these days, isn't it? More so probably than ever. And it's obvious that many sports wouldn't happen without sponsorship. Big companies pay large sums of money to sponsor well-known teams in return for publicity. And uh, that leads, in theory, to increased prominence and commerce. Take Manchester City, for example, current Premier League champions. Apologies to any Liverpool fans in the congregation. Although you're probably feeling better as a result of last night. Um, Manchester City's main sponsor is Etihad Airways. And uh, it's on their shirts. You see it emblazoned across the the, uh, front of their shirts. Uh, The stadium is named after them. Man City no longer play at Main Road. They now play at the Etihad Stadium. Uh, And when you log on to the Man City's website, the first thing you see, the very first thing you see is uh, their global sponsors, a list of their global partners. Uh, and Etihad Airways is at the top of that. So you get the message. You can't come into contact with Man City for very long without knowing who their major backer is. Well, this is far from a perfect comparison, but it should be similar with the Christian, that everyone can see the name on our shirts, so to speak, and that very soon after people come into contact with us, there should be no no doubt about who's backing us. Christ should be exalted in us by the way we live. To live is Christ. So that's a bit about what it means to live. Secondly, we see what it means to die. And here again, Paul turns common thinking on its head. And he reminds us that rather than being the end of everything, to die is a benefit for those who are trusting in Christ. He says that to die is gain. We see this expanded further in verse 23. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. Better by far. And this is why he's struggling with the question of whether it's better to be alive or dead. We can say there's a natural tension. It's quite right on the one hand to want to stay with the people we love and to serve them, as Paul clearly does here, but also wanting to depart and be with Christ, passing into eternal life. We need to be careful, I think, of two things at this point. First, we need to be careful of making it sound like death is a welcome friend. You know, certainly death is still hard for the Christian, isn't it? Those of you who've lost a close family friend or or family member will know that. You know, maybe they've been ill for a long time. And in that sense, you know, death is no surprise. But it's still a shock when it happens. And even knowing that person was saved, the separation and loss is hard to deal with. can take years to come to terms with. Or perhaps you never fully get over it. And the reason, that de- the reason is that death is an, is an intruder into God's world. Before the fall, complete fellowship with God was possible without the trauma and separation that death is. And this tension would not have been necessary without the fall. Now, Christ's victory partially overcomes the tension, but it's only a partial overcoming because we still have to wait for the resurrection uh, to be united again. And also because not all of those we love are saved. And that's an extra reason, of course, isn't it, to pray urgently for people. So although being with with Christ is far better and dying is gain, it is still hard. That's the first uh, point to be careful of. Second thing I think to be careful of is that we can sometimes only see death as a gain on account of what we can get out of going to heaven. 
You know, for example, we talk about it being the end of so many things about life that are hard. You know, the end of sin, the end of temptation, the end of hurt, jealousy, broken relationships, and so on. And that's all true, isn't it? But sometimes we can think about heaven as a place of endless pleasure where everything will be great and almost exclude God from that view or sideline him in some way. It's important that we don't see heaven as existing primarily for our sake. The real reason it exists is for God's own glory. And if we get that wrong, our view of heaven becomes self-centred, whereas, of course, it should be centred on God. On this same point, it's interesting to note that the New Testament sometimes uses God and heaven somewhat interchangeably. For example, in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son says to his father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He doesn't say I've sinned against God, but of course that's what he means, but he says I've sinned against heaven. In many places, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. He's the only one of the gospel writers to use that phrase. But of course, he's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. So again, heaven and God are used interchangeably. The point being that heaven is all about God, and we must be careful not to separate the two or to sideline God in some way in thinking about heaven. But here, Paul specifically talks about Christ. So why is he highlighting that? Why is he saying, you know, it's better uh, to depart and be with Christ is better by far? Uh, Why is Christ such an important part of heaven? Well, in his book, Heaven and Hell, uh, Edward Donnelly points out three reasons to answer this. The first reason is that Christ brings us there. How else could we sinners get to heaven? But it's interesting, isn't it, that there's an almost universal view that that human human beings, that people deserve to go to heaven when they die. But when you read about the perfection of heaven in the Bible, when you understand our own sinful state, you realise that there's such a gulf to overcome, such a gulf to cross, that there's no way we could get there under our own power. It's a ridiculous idea. Uh, So we know, don't we, that it's, it's Jesus who brings us to heaven by redeeming us, by paying the price for sin, by making us holy by his ongoing work in us and his righteousness imputed to us, which covers our sin, but also by his ongoing work of intercession for us before the Father, sustaining us and keeping us strong in the faith. It's Christ that brings us to heaven. Second reason is that Christ is more clearly seen in heaven. It's true, isn't it, that as believers we are right now in Christ, but our experience is somewhat, uh, is far from perfect right now. And one part of that is that we do not yet see our Saviour. Hebrews 11 reminds us of this. It says, faith is being certain of what we do not see. Or 1 Peter 1 verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, talking about Jesus. But in heaven we will see him clearly. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says that we know that when he or G- he, Jesus, appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That will be an awesome experience in the true meaning of the word. So that's the second reason that Jesus, Christ, is clearly seen in heaven. And the third reason is that Christ is at the heart of heaven's blessings. All that we have now is bound up with Christ, and we can only come to God the Father through him. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. But there's no reason to think that that relationship will change in heaven. Is it likely that the Father will say, say, well, it was important for you to be in Christ while you were on earth, but that's no longer relevant? Of course not. 
Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We will continue in Christ and he is the means by which we remain in heaven forever. And he will mean, in that sense, even more to us then than he does now. So those are a few reasons why Paul emphasises the aspect of being with Christ. It's one of the things to most look forward to about uh, heaven and why he says to die is gain. We also see in these verses that dying as a believer means that Christ is exalted. We said that Christ was exalted by the way we live, but he's also exalted by the way that we die, and that will occur in two ways. First, because the death of the believer uh, means the fulfilment of God's sovereign purpose. You know, God's purpose in choosing them, in saving them, in bringing them to heaven. That's the completion of God's sovereign purpose. And Christ is the means by which that purpose is achieved. So he is exalted as it becomes completed. But secondly, our witness. You know, death is sometimes called the ultimate statistic. It happens to 100% of people without exceptions. And in the same way that how we live shows where our allegiance lies, the way we approach death also tells people where our hope is. Now, at this point, I think it's natural to think about martyrs, you know, particularly people who die for their faith, either in, in the past or continue to do so in certain parts of the world. Uh, people die because they're Christians. But for all of us, you know, who are perhaps unlikely to, to face that, our approach to dying is still a way that we can seek to exalt Christ. As death approaches, you often see people liberated, don't you, and able to speak freely about trusting the Saviour and knowing they're headed for glory. In some ways, especially if you're young, having become a Christian, it's, it's a bit easy to carry on life without much thought about death. Perhaps with the thought that now we are secure, we don't, we don't need to worry about the details yet. That's something to, um, to think about later. As I've prepared for this, I've been reminded how little time I spend pondering it day to day. Now, I'm not encouraging a morbid interest, but we should at least have a biblical view on what's going to happen and be prepared for it, and be looking forward to it. And this, I think, is what is meant by Christ being exalted by our death. In many ways, it seems, if we get the first part right and live for Christ, then the second that will naturally lead into the second. So, going back to where we started, did we answer the question, is it better to be alive or dead? Well, hopefully you've been thinking as, we go th- as we've gone through this, that the answer is... Well, yes. (laughs) Living for Christ is what it means uh, to really live. That's the true meaning of life. It's the life we were intended for. And the death we are meant to die, uh, one which looks forward to true union with Christ, not forgetting that it is hard, is truly gain. Uh, And in that sense, that will mean that Christ is exalted in us. And that's the true purpose of all of this.